0: So welcome everybody, for those of you that are new, have never joined a Bible study before, today we're talking about, well the series that we're in is called The Divine Son. Give me one sec. It's called The Divine Son. And um, this is part five. Uh, We've already spent four full episodes talking about how Jesus is communicated to be um, God in the flesh, the, the eternal word emanating from the Father, made flesh, we spent four episodes talking about that. Today, what I want to do is I want to kind of think through and talk through two of the most common pushbacks that I receive when it comes to Jesus being God. Um, typically, if, if you've ever come across people like this, um, especially Muslims that I come across um, or Jehovah's Witnesses, the language that they use is this. They'll go, well, Jesus can't be God, number one. Because the scripture says he's the firstborn. I don't know why I said say it, like I'm from Texas. The scripture says he's um, the firstborn. So that means he's created. Or they'll say something along the lines of, well, scripture, like in John chapter 1, you know, it says he's the only begotten. He's the only begotten son, meaning he was created. He was brought forth. He was conceived and he was created. And I go, I don't know, man. And so what I want to do today is as best as I possibly can with, with the, the tired eyes that I have, it's obvious I didn't get sleep, okay, but I'm doing my best. Lord Jesus, help me. Um, what I want to do is, is help equip you to defend this doctrine, this teaching, which is that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's distinct from the Father. He's distinct from the Spirit. He's the eternal word emanating from the Father. But how do we make sense of what does it mean that he's the firstborn? What does it mean that he's the only begotten Son? And so today's going to be episode one. Technically, within this bigger series, the divine son, this is going to be the first episode where we start talking about what it means that he's the only begotten son. uh, What that means, what that language includes, how that theme is traced all throughout the scriptures. And it starts with this language of the firstborn. Okay, so when you go to passages like, um, I don't know, uh, Colossians chapter one, verse 15. Let's just go there real quick. This is typically... A scripture that people who deny the divinity of Jesus will use. They'll say, "Well, he's the firstborn of all creation, which means he's a created being." And I go, "Bro, <laughs> you've you've no idea what you're talking about. You've no your your English background, all the cultural ideas that you have, you shove it into that idea, and you, you you're already missing the mark." Okay, so I really hope to equip you to make sense of these things because I'm sure if you have not heard these arguments yet. That, you know, Jesus can't be God because he's created. Firstborn, he's the only begotten. You're going to hear them eventually. And what are you going to do when you hear them? Will you be able to defend them? Will you be able to look at scripture and make sense of what that means? So um, when it comes to the firstborn, okay, the literal sense of firstborn refers to offspring or seed or descendants, okay? Uh, And I'll show you the Greek word used. I'll show you how it's used in the Old Testament and how we make sense of it. Then we'll tackle the only begotten. This is cool, okay? When you make sense of this and see it all, it'll blow your mind. I promise. Uh, The literal sense of firstborn refers to seed. It refers to rank or status within a family. So the firstborn son in a patriarchal society was given unique, special status. Above the other brothers, above the other siblings, the firstborn would become the head of the family upon his father's death. He'd receive his father's blessing, Genesis 27. He'd receive a double portion of the inheritance, Deuteronomy 21, 17. And he'd be the primary carrier of the family name. In other words, he continues the legacy, essentially. Okay, the name continues through that firstborn. So it refers to rank and status, um, an inheritance, like an heir, the one who's the the rightful owner of the estate um though the other siblings do get a portion um the metaphorical sense so that's the literal sense the metaphorical sense of firstborn refers to the uniqueness and special favor and treatment i'll say that again the metaphorical sense and i'll show you with exodus chapter 4 where we get this idea because firstborn is going to be used of israel the nation a people composed of hundreds of thousands of israelites and God is gonna say, that's my firstborn son. So when it comes to the metaphorical sense of the word firstborn, like in Exodus 4, 22, God appoints and chooses Israel, a nation, to be his firstborn son. So not in the sense that they're conceived or created or literal offspring of God, but in the sense that they are uniquely appointed and chosen by God to be his special nation. Okay, so God takes the descendants of Abraham now you know in slavery to Egypt and he tells this to Pharaoh well he's talking to Moses here he says uh, you can't see it yet so let me fix the screen I'm glad I checked I'm glad I checked cuz it's always freaking happens we'll do window let's go to display bingo bango. you can see it now okay so of exodus 422 it says then you will say to Pharaoh God's telling Moses this is what the Lord says Israel is my firstborn son not Jacob, not Israel, the individual, the nation. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. I think the Bible Project in their in their most recent series, yeah, the firstborn, they traced that theme so well. They did a fantastic job. I would recommend you go listen to the podcast or at least look at the video they put out. Uh, of the firstborn it really traces this theme because if you miss if you misstep if you get ahead of the theme if you jump the gun you're gonna misunderstand what firstborn means so we see this idea put forth for the nation of Israel God says you're my firstborn son what does that mean that they were created and conceived well in some sense from Abraham's you know loins you might say uh, God allowed the nation to arise right he blessed Abraham to be fruitful to be to multiply. Right, so that his descendants would multiply and fill the earth. So we have the nation of Israel in that sense. But more than that, when he this is the first time we see Israel referred to as the, first, as the firstborn son. This is a nation. This is a people. This is referring to their appointed status as the chosen nation of God. God chooses Israel, not to the neglect of the Gentile nations, but for their benefit. And so what you're going to see is this actually signifies Israel's favored status among the nations no other nation gets to be in covenant relationship with god no other nation has the priestly function to perform unto god as a saving light to the gentiles to represent torah no one else has no other nation gets to you know have the priesthood and the tabernacle or the temple eventually and the sacrificial system uh, and, the, and the and the laws of god and that unique status and and eventually the messiah comes through them no other nation has that unique appointed status So when God says to Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go, it's not literal. It's talking metaphorically, this is my appointed, uniquely chosen nation or, you know, one to represent me um, and carry the rank or status. And um, you're going to see that in the Greek. And I want to go to the Greek because more people have issue with the New Testament verses that use this word. People don't typically have issue with like Old Testament passages where the Hebrew word for firstborn is used. Genesis 49.3, like um, Jacob will tell Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength. So in this context, for Reuben to be the firstborn, that means he's actually Jacob's first chronological son, the very first of his strength, preeminent. And this is going to be very important for when we get to Jesus being the firstborn, It's referring to rank and status and preeminence. That word is literally going to be used in Colossians chapter 1, 15. When he's the firstborn from the dead, when he's the firstborn of all creation, it's talking about how in everything, he's preeminent, first, supreme. So the problem is Reuben doesn't get to be the the actual firstborn in continuing the name. The seed, the promised Messiah, isn't going to come through Reuben. The, the physical firstborn of Jacob, actually, Jesus the Messiah is going to come through um, the, you might say, the spiritual firstborn of Jacob, that being Judah, the line of Judah. And so that's why Genesis will pause on Joseph being sold into slavery, and then the camera kind of pans to what's going on with Judah and his sons and, his, and their wives, because you're trying to follow who's the promised seed of the woman. Where is he coming? Well, he's going to come through Judah. So in that sense, Judah continues the name, continues the lineage. He gets to be the the vehicle through which the Messiah comes, not Reuben, who is the physical firstborn. But preeminence here is going to relate strongly to the idea of firstborn, okay? So you you need to remember that. When you think firstborn, think the first of of, of all, the supremacy. It notes preeminence. It notes uh, first place, rank and status, especially in a family. So Jesus is very simply the first and the gra- and the greatest. The Greek word used for firstborn is prototokos. And honestly, it sounds like a brand of chips. Prototokos, for firstborn, it literally means eldest, first, or preeminent. Basically, in our terms, it means chief, or holding the first place. Okay, so I, I don't know why people run with this, and they go, you know what? Um, Jesus has to be created because he's a firstborn. Pause. You shoving your Americanized version of firstborn into the text is not how you read the Bible. Preeminent. I understand that in the English it does translate firstborn, but what does that mean contextually? What does that mean throughout the narrative of Scripture? How is that theme unpacked? What does that word mean in each individual place? It means preeminence. First place, holding chief you know, position. It's just like Reuben. Just like Israel in the list of nations for God, that's his appointed chosen nation. And the the rank and status within the divine family of God, the nation of Israel, was the uniquely appointed one. And you're going to see all this language used exactly of Jesus. Uniquely appointed, preeminent, first, having ultimate rank, supremacy, all that. It's going to be used of Christ. So very simply... When we get to texts like Colossians 1, Romans 8, Psalm 89, Hebrews 1, Revelations 1, you're going to see that Jesus is the firstborn, but it's so much more than what we've been taught and what we think. It has nothing to do with being created. Very simply, again, it's uniqueness, greatness, and supremacy. You might want to write that down. Firstborn notes uniqueness, supremacy, and greatness, or superiority. He's the first to rise from the dead. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at every single text in the New Testament that links Jesus as the firstborn. Okay? It says Jesus is the image. We're already off to a fantastic start. Man, humanity is made in the image. Completely different from Jesus being the image of the invisible God. The word the, the fact that it's in front of image, It means he's exclusively the only one. There's not many, there's not multiple. There's only one exclusive image, perfect image of the invisible God, and that's Jesus. That's why he says, When you see me, you see the Father. And then people get confused and go, He's the Father. He's not the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. That's where we get the language of the visible presence of Yahweh in the Old Testament and then the invisible presence. Jesus is the image meaning since we're made in the image jesus is not because he is the exact image we're fashioned after and then it goes he's the firstborn of all creation why do you think paul intentionally starts with he's the image of the invisible god before he says he's the firstborn of all creation so that no one is confused and goes oh he's created he has a beginning he was brought into you know reality no He was conceived by the Virgin Mary, but the eternal word emanating from the Father was always there. All he did was put on flesh and continue existing in a different mode, meaning he put on flesh. He became one of us. Okay, so he's the firstborn of all creation. And people go, see, he's the first of all created things. Paul's not gonna at all touch on that. He's not gonna say that in the least bit. It says, by him, by Jesus, all things were created all created things are in one category just so you know in heaven earth visible invisible thrones dominions rulers authorities all things were created through him and for him so what we have here is all created things in one category jesus does not fit into the category of created things you know why because he's the one who brings everything into existence He is distinct from everything that is created. He's in a different category. In fact, he's the image. So for him to be the firstborn of all creation, again, notes rank, status, and supremacy above all. How? Because all creation comes into existence by the uncreated God, who is the image of the invisible God, the Son, the eternal word emanating from the Father. He brings everything into existence. So, When it says he's the firstborn of all creation, Paul is not lumping Jesus into the category of creation. He's taking him distinct from all creation. These are created things, this is Jesus, and Paul's going, yeah, he's the first. He's the the uncaused cause, he's the unmoved mover. He initiated all created things to come into existence and be organized and structured. He's the method, he's the origin. How do you know that? Because he goes on, he's before all things, everything created. He doesn't lump Jesus into the category of created things. He distinguishes Jesus from all created things. If Paul says all things, he proceeds, all things are created. He proceeds and he's before and he made it. Then he couldn't say that if Jesus was in the category of created things. Paul would have to say, Jesus, another created thing, brought every other created thing into existence. He doesn't say that. He's before everything. In him, all things hold together. Okay? And what you're going to see here is that he's also going to be called the firstborn from the dead. So verse 18, he is the head. Remember rank, status, supremacy, having chief place. He's the head. Like the control center, the ultimate, you know, thinking faculty of the entire body, the one driving the thing, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of it all, all of creation, who clicked the button to start everything going. Who's the beginning? Who was there before everything else existed? Who is the eternally existent one? Apparently it's Jesus, who is the firstborn from the dead. So we have the firstborn of all creation. Now, just to be clear, the only times you're going to see firstborn attributed to Jesus is in Colossians 1, Romans 8, Hebrews 1, and Revelation 1. Those are the only times. Two times out of those one, two, three, four total times. Two of those times are right here in the same passage. It's very important to understand. Like, catch this. It is very, very important (laughs) to understand the fact that he's the firstborn of all creation, but he's also the firstborn from the dead. Now you go, what does that mean? We'll get to that. I just want to focus on him being the firstborn of all creation. Okay? But he's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be what? What does preeminent mean? Supremacy, preexistence, ultimate rank, having supreme chief place, having first place. Remember, we've talked about this already, that when you're the firstborn, that's your unique rank and status in the patriarchal family. You had the continuing name of of the father. You would continue the lineage. You'd get a larger portion of the inheritance and the blessing would fall upon you. So that's why Jacob goes for Esau. And he's like, and you have that? I'm going to take that myself. And then the second usurps the first. And things are kind of reversed, but God works with it. And he actually appointed things to work like that for Jacob and Esau. The point for Jesus is that him being the firstborn of all creation relates to him being the firstborn from the dead. It's almost like, pause, the same way that Jesus is going to be the first or he's gonna be the beginning, the one who initiates all creation. In the same way, resurrection life coming up from the dead, that refers to new heavens and new earth, new creation. So in the same way that Jesus created all things in the first world and initiated all that, well, when it comes to new creation, he's the first of all, he starts all of that too. By being our representative and being the first from the dead, Um, And in that sense, right, he's brought forth from the dead, right? Just like he brings creation forth, he's going to be brought forth from the dead. There's a lot of things happening, but I want to take you to Romans 8.29 because, again, note how Jesus being the image is related to him being the firstborn, okay? Because remember, when we're born again, By the Spirit of God, through faith, and by the grace of God, we're born into the family of God. Who was officially the first human representative to make way for our adoption? In other words, who is the ultimate son who allows us to have his very sonship and his status with the Father? Well, his name is Jesus, and he's the image of the invisible God, therefore, He's the firstborn in the sense that he is the first of the new family of God because he made way for us to be adopted. And he doesn't gain anything he lacks. He gains what we lack on our behalf. So Romans 8.29, it says, uh, For those whom he foreknew at being God, he knew ahead of time, he also predestined, this is pre, you know, to destined ahead of time, um, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now watch, in order that, remember I said Jesus being the image is related to him being the firstborn, in order that he might be the what? Here we see the third time in the New Testament the word firstborn is used, depending on the order of the New Testament for you. Technically Colossians comes after Romans, so this would be the first. The point is, he's the firstborn among many what? Brethren. Hebrews chapter 1 is gonna talk about how we are now, by the grace of God, considered like brothers and sisters of, of Jesus in the sense that we're in the family that he is. We have the same father as he has. And so him being the first human representative to rise from the dead on our behalf means that now we get to walk in his footsteps and be brothers and sisters in the same family. But that's only possible if we can be conformed to his very image and have his status with the Father, and have his sonship, have his righteousness, have his perfection, have his holiness. And that's exactly what happens at the moment of salvation, is that God gives, graces you and I with the very identity of his son. So the ultimate firstborn allows other brothers and sisters to come into the family because he bestows his identity on us since he's the image and we're fashioned after his image and we're imitating him, his image, right? And we're born again in his likeness. Well, he is the first of what we all get to follow in the footsteps of. As being part of the family of God, he's the ultimate son. And we get to be a part of that family now. So uh, what Romans 8 is touching on is sanctification, being transformed daily, means you're becoming more like Jesus, the ultimate firstborn. Referring to what? rank? status, and preeminence, okay? So when you go to Revelation 1, which I'm not going to go to yet, you're going to see what it means that he's risen from the dead as the firstborn. Psalm 89, 26 through 27, this is, um, well, one of the prophetic psalms. Speaking of, uh, we're going to go to Psalm 89, actually, when we go to Hebrews Hebrews uses the Psalms a lot. There's something going on there where the author of Hebrews is just living in the Psalms and he's pulling out New Testament truth, seeing Jesus where he rightly belongs in the Psalms and then making that application, reinforcing his points for the audience. And so we'll go to Psalm 89 when we look at Hebrews chapter one. But um, Psalm 89, 26 through 27 refers to, uh, I-, I believe, the ultimate firstborn son, Jesus. Um uh, David being a, a, a shadow of Jesus, a, a Christ type. And so a lot of his Psalms are prophetic. He's said to, you know, write by the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God, you know, puts forth his word through David. And so his words are not only authoritative in that sense from God, but also um, prophetically declaring Jesus. So this ultimate son that's coming shall cry to me, this is God speaking, you are my father, you are my God and the rock of my salvation. Okay, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So, in the Old Testament, to be the firstborn, rank and status in a national sense meant you were actually the highest ruler and king. That's why Israel, the nation, is referred to as God's firstborn son. When he tells Egypt, that wicked nation, right, he says, let my people go. And God says, if you don't, I'm gonna take your firstborn. And he does. In order to get his firstborn, he redeems. There's a picture of redemption there. Getting his children um, at the cost of the other firstborn. And eventually, that's gonna, you know, foreshadow jesus the ultimate firstborn laying his life down so we could be set free but the point is being firstborn relates to being the highest of the kings of the earth that is so important that is so important because because there's almost concentric circles to this there's there's firstborn within a family there's firstborn within a nation there's firstborn within even the surrounding nations And and it and it works its way out so that jesus ends up being all of those all of those. The firstborn in the divine family of God. The first as the ultimate king of all rulers on the earth. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He has preeminence in rank and status, right? And so, back to, um, actually, let's go to Hebrews 1 real quick. And then we'll make our way back to Colossians chapter 1. This is what Hebrews 1.6 says. And again, when God brings the firstborn into the world, pause, does that note creation, bringing something into the world? Not necessarily. In fact, let's make it very clear that God actually is speaking of this firstborn. When he comes into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. What happens when Jesus is conceived by the Virgin Mary? Well, you have angels declaring his arrival to the shepherds. You have angels crying out that he's here, essentially attributing worship um, to the Son. And then you'll see the shepherds, you'll see the wise men from the East come and worship this baby Jesus, who is apparently just a created human, right? No, he's not. He's the firstborn. And God brings him into the world, which, do, which notes, which doesn't assume being created. You can pre-exist. And that's exactly who Jesus is. The eternal word emanating from the Father pre-exists his human life. And he comes into the world, meaning he changes forms. He takes on a different mode of existence. He puts on flesh. And he, as the already firstborn existent one, comes into the world. Meaning, he's already the firstborn. He's just coming into the world to do something new. And God makes it clear who he is by saying, let all God's angels worship him. God actually demands worship for his son. So that's really important. Let's keep going. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 1 because we're tr- these are all the passages, man, that Jehovah's witnesses will use, that uh, Muslims will use, and this is not at all an attack on them. This is just how they typically will frame up Jesus as a created being. Um, and if you're like, no, we don't, then maybe you're not a Muslim or a Jehovah's witness like you think because that's their typical doctrine. Colossians 1, look at what it says. He's the firstborn from the dead. Now note, this has to do with preeminence. When you think preeminent, just think supremacy. He's he's ultimate. He's supreme. He has the chief rank and status as the just ultimate supreme king. That's what we saw in Psalms chapter 89. Is that the firstborn is the ultimate king of kings. So the firstborn from the dead here notes preeminence. Okay. So we're gonna go to Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter 1. And it says, Grace to you and peace from him who is, from him who was, and from him who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, which might just note the number of perfection, maybe not actually numerical. And from Jesus Christ, who is described as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Pause. Pause. Where else have we seen that firstborn means ultimate king? Well, Psalm 89. Well, Colossians chapter 1, to have supreme uh, authority and power over all creation, which includes every king and ruler that exists, in the physical and spiritual, he's ultimate. Hebrews is going to touch on this so much. And that's why I want to pace myself and not rush through this. I want you to see it. I don't just want to dump a truckload of data on you. I want you to, to, to meditate on these things. And notice that Jesus being the firstborn of the dead relates to him being the ultimate ruler of every king that exists on the earth. And he's the faithful witness. These three ideas come together um, for John in his writing. Okay, So what it means that he's the firstborn of the dead is actually explained in verse 17. Uh, when I saw him, and John is referring to seeing Jesus, he says, I, I fell at his feet as, as though I was dead. And yet he laid his right hand. Why note the right hand? Think about what the right hand represents in scripture. He laid his right hand on me and he said, Fear not. Guess how Jesus refers to himself? He says, I am the first and I am the last. First and last? What? And I am the living one. What? I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Megapause. This right here, we're not just talking about rulers of the kings on earth anymore. Keys here represent authority to unlock, authority to open, or authority to shut and lock. Meaning, guess who has, as the first human representative to rise from the dead, guess who has? the ability as our representative to extend that very life and victory over death to anyone who believes. Who has that ability now? Now that he's paid for sin, died our death, paid our fees, made way for us, fulfilled the law, resurrected, guess who has the power and authority to do that as one of us, okay? Not just as God, as one of us. Because what did Adam and Eve forfeit in the garden? Their authority to rule. Their ability to to effectively steward and cultivate and rule over God's earth. They gave up their authority when they chose to sin and rebel. And they chose to follow the serpent. And they gave him the keys, essentially, and said, Here, you. They thought they'd become gods. They actually became slaves. And the enemy took advantage, and the serpent becomes what Jesus will refer to as the ruler of this world, you know, in the present. But Jesus does have the authority Over death and Hades. That's why he's going to destroy death. Just like throw all this wickedness and evil and death and Satan and his minions and all and hell itself into the fire. It's just going to be destroyed. Why do you think Jesus has the ability and the authority to give us eternal life? Number one, he represents us. Number two, he's won back for us what Adam and Eve forfeited. Okay? And so. For Jesus to be the first and the last, this is why Romans says he's the last Adam, or he's the second Adam. He's the last, you know, human representative we need. Adam failed, he was the first, Jesus is the last, and now he makes way for new humanity. It's like Jesus's life and death signal the end of sin reigning over humanity. So now, through his death and resurrection, metaphorically being born from the dead, now that he's up from the dead, he now can give us new life and there's a new lineage starting. There's a new, you know, legacy for us. He starts a whole new family tree where Adam is no longer, you know, at the top and we're all born in Adam now. Well, now we're born in Christ through faith. We're spiritually given life. And so Jesus is the last in the sense that he's the last of that, you know, uh, you might say, uh, I don't know, human era where sin was reigning and dominating and now anyone can effectively have victory over death with him through faith. He gives you the opportunity to be born again. You can now stand above the enemies with him. And he's the first how? Well, he's the last Adam, the last to die. He's the first to actually rise from the dead. He's alive forevermore. No one else has resurrected to never die again. Lazarus, you know, was raised from the dead, but not resurrected. He was raised from the dead in the sense that he was alive, but he's just gonna die again. Same with everyone else in the Bible who was raised back to life after dying. Jesus is not gonna die again. He has eternal, everlasting life that never ends and can't be, you know, destroyed or corrupted. He offers that life to you and me. And so note right hand here, authority here, power and rule. And I'm just, I'm just trying to show you like firstborn goes well beyond just a lot of people just want to drive straight for the word, right? And they go to the word and they go, well, in the Greek, well, pause. I know what the Greek word means. Do you know what it means? Yeah, it means created. No, it doesn't. It means eldest, first or preeminent. Well, it assumes a created family says who? just because it's used of created beings doesn't mean it's ever, you know, used of an uncreated. That's exactly who Jesus is. He has chief place. He has ultimate supremacy. He's the first. He's preeminent, right? In rule and authority and power over death itself. He's the first human to rise from the dead never to die again. He's the first of our, you might say, new spiritual family that we can be a part of. He's the first. No one else has been resurrected to glorified body, but we're promised that we'll follow in his footsteps and be a part of his family. That's what Hebrews 12 touches on. It's exactly what Hebrews 12 touches on. And we're going to go there because I got to show you this. It's taking way longer than I thought, but I'd rather go slow and make sure you see it. It says, you have come to Mount Zion. This is the author of Hebrews saying, don't go back don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to the old way of relating to God without Jesus. Look to him as Messiah. Keep following him faithfully. People are tempted to abandon or to, they're close to following. I don't know, like that looks real hard. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, for those of you that have come to believe, you've come to Mount Zion, you've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly. Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in feastal festal gathering like a festival and to the assembly of what the assembling of what says the assembly of the firstborn this is the assembly meaning multiple not just one multiple of the firstborn what does that mean of those who have that rank and status um in the divine family, what does Jesus share with his people? I mean, it's Peter goes so far as to say we're partakers of the, the, the divine nature. Doesn't mean we're God at all. Doesn't mean we're God now, or deity, or divinity. What that means is Jesus' status and rank as the ultimate firstborn human representative from the dead. He now allows you to be a part of that assembly. So that technically, you know how God referred to Israel collectively as his firstborn? Well, now, anyone who's in Christ, just like anyone who descended from Abraham was a part of national Israel, and that was the firstborn of God. Well, now, anyone born again in Christ, and you're positioned in Jesus through faith, you're a part of that firstborn assembly. Because look, who are enrolled in heaven. So if you believe you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, You've come to the spiritual Mount Zion that's going to last. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and you've come to the assembly of the firstborn where your name is actually written in heaven. You're enrolled, like you're enrolling in a college course, but way better, and to God, the judge of all. And guess what? To the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What the author of Hebrews wants you to see is that Jesus here is the better Abel because his blood does not condemn. His blood actually redeems and purchases and atones for sin. His blood purifies. His blood speaks mercy and grace. Whereas the blood of Abel cried out demanding for justice. And Jesus has taken that. He's handled that. He's taken the wrath. He's handled, you know, uh, dealt with the justice. And now there's a new covenant. He's the mediator. So what you're going to see is Jesus. We're going to see this in Hebrews. What it means for Jesus to be the firstborn, having ultimate rank and ultimate status within the divine family of God that we're now a part of because of him. It means that he's the mediator. He's the middleman. He's the one who holds the covenant, upholds our end of the covenant. So firstborn here, guess what? You and I now are a part of that unique rank and status because Jesus graciously grants it to us. Do you see it? Do you see it? So the word firstborn, as much as you want to fight against it and run to some translation that supports your presuppositions and what you were trained to think, it actually means when it comes to Jesus, the word firstborn, and in every other context, First in rank and status, uniquely appointed, having first place and supremacy. Does that sound like created? This we force that into the word. So if you're Muslim or if you're Jehovah's Witness, you're gonna have to find a brand new argument. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to find something else. You can no longer tell people, well, Jesus being firstborn means created. Nope, not at all. Not at all, my friend. You are completely wrong and you don't know how to read the scriptures. The word firstborn refers to, again, the unique status given to Jesus, which includes the fact he's the only uniquely appointed God-man, mediator, high priest of a new covenant. God has appointed him to, essentially, be the only first human representative to rise from the dead, establish a covenant, pay for sin, fulfill the law, no one else. And God validates his son at the baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration, at the resurrection Hebrews 5:5 5, 5. just so we're all in agreement what you're going to see now is you know uh, people who want to argue that Jesus is not divine they'll also say things they can't say firstborn anymore cuz that argument falls apart but they'll say things like you know he's the only begotten which means he was created he was brought forth the word literally means brought forth and conceived Hebrews 5.5, and we're going to transition a little bit, okay? Um, I don't know if I'll get to what I wanted to today. I might need to take a breather, and we'll save this for next Monday because, uh, again, I want to pace myself, and I want you guys to not have so much information that you can't digest it. Hebrews 5.5, it says, I want you you to see the transition between uh, firstborn and only begotten. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Because technically, Jesus, coming from the line of Judah, according to Torah, he should not have been a high priest because of the fact that he didn't descend from the tribe of Levi. And, especially a high priest, he didn't descend from the line of Aaron. So the Aaronic priesthood requires the high priest to descend from Levi, and Aaron, obviously, he descends from Levi And Jesus, how is he a high priest? How is he the mediator of a new covenant? Hebrews will go on to explain that. But what you're going to see is that he didn't make himself a high priest and violate the law or work around it. In fact, quite the opposite. God appoints him to be a high priest. The Father validates the Son, the divine Son, to be the high priest for all of humanity. In fact, here's what God says of the son. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then the Muslim or Jehovah's Witness individual will take this and run with it and build a doctrine out of their translation that is obviously, mis- if you know, intentionally leaving words out and they'll go, see, he's created. Look at the context. Being begotten here refers to being appointed to be something unique. What other high priest is there outside of the tribe of Levi? You might go, uh, Jethro. Well, Jethro was a priest in Midian. Doesn't count. Uh, well, uh, Melchizedek. Melchizedek wasn't a part of the nation of Israel. He was in Jerusalem, at the time Salem, as the king of righteousness and peace. He's an image of Jesus, foreshadowing Jesus. So you can't use either of them. What other high priest is appointed outside of the tribe of Levi to be representative, the representative of God's people? Melchizedek seems to typify that in some ways. That's why he'll bring in Melchizedek in Hebrews. Jethro is a kind of, but he's, it's with Midian. You know, he is with God, but it's it's for Midian, not like people of Israel or the humanity at large. So for Jesus to be begotten here, for God to say, you are my son, it's a validating statement. You see it? He's saying, You are my son, today, right now, I have begotten, uniquely appointed you to be what? Specifically, the one who represents us to the Father, our defense attorney, our high priest, uh, our advocate, the one who mediates a new covenant. He also says this in another place, you are a priest forever. Now here's Melchizedek after the order of Melchizedek. In what way? Well, in the sense that Melchizedek just kind of comes out of nowhere. Bro just kind of soars out of Salem and goes, oh, thank you, uh, Abraham. And Abraham goes, oh, here's the tenth of my stuff. And you're like, what is happening? In the same way that Melchizedek, in in some sense, continues as a priest, um, Jesus is likened to that, but in a better way. His his priesthood is eternal and actually established forever, not just recorded um, and taken note of. Jesus's priesthood continues forever; it can't be stopped. You you cannot stop the the, the mediating work of Christ on our behalf, where he's pleading with the Father, standing in our place, representing us, defending us, and holding up our end of the covenant, he'll never stop doing that. So for Jesus to be begotten, in that context, Hebrews 5, he's uniquely appointed to be the only perfect representative of humanity, man. Um, the other thing you're going to see is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28. Hebrews seven twenty eight. it says, The law appoints men, notice the appointment of high priest and the language um, in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, uh, appoints a son, okay, who has been made perfect forever. So here we have the status of Jesus as what? As son, not as angelic messenger, not as, an ex, you know, just a created spiritual being as the actual son of God. And again, that title is connected to being appointed. To be what? High priest. Not by the law. The law didn't appoint Jesus to be high priest. The promise and the oath God made to Abraham, that's what allows him to be high priest. Um, which um, the word he's referring to is. Uh, <sighs> believe it's psalm yeah psalm 110 okay but technically the oath can be traced all the way back to god promising abraham that hey i'll make your descendants as numerable as the sand on the seashore um as much as the stars in the sky that was um or even genesis 3 that the um, the promised seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent you know, you got all these different statements that aren't explicitly saying, he'll be a high priest meeting a new covenant. But it's language that comes together to form the picture of Jesus in the very like first few chapters of the Bible. Um, so this has always been there. You know, that preceded the institution of the law. Not to belittle the law, we're not minimizing the law at all. The problem is when you make the law ultimate and you say, well, how, he can't I bypass it. God, God can't work within and without, he's not violating the law at all. He's saying, guess what? What all the broken high priests keep coming from the tribe of Levi. So I'm going to appoint a son to come through Judah to do what none of the human, rep, you know, purely human representatives can do because Jesus coming is, he's going to be God in the flesh and he's going to go around what the Torah requires in terms of you need to be a Levite, You need to come from Aaron and Jesus is going to be appointed by the resurrected life. So you go, what's his qualification? What's the basis for God doing that? Well, you resurrect from the dead, and we'll see if you have any kind of argument. But Jesus resurrects from the dead. Those are his credentials to be our high priest. Did any of the other high priests that descend from Levi, did they rise from the dead? Did they conquer sin and death? Did they sacrificially lay down their life? No, they didn't. So they don't have the qualification to represent us eternally, especially the fact they have sin. Jesus does not. So he's more qualified and more capable of being our high priest than what the law could have required you know instituted or um you know put in place for us so you know i had envisioned today that we would tackle um hebrews 1 here's what i want to do instead um since we're done a little early uh, there's no way man like i'll show you my notes look if i do this if i insert page number uh you're getting a sneak peek at my notes. Don't expose me. Gosh darn it. No. Insert page number. Okay. I still have... That That was four pages of notes. I still have six more. And this is going to be far more explanation. We're going to go through Psalms chapter 2 as a whole chapter. We're going to go through Psalm 89. You probably can't see this. It is what it is. It's Psalm 89 as a whole passage. We're going to go through... Uh, psalm 97 as a whole passage some this is going to take like two hours minimum so there's no way i can get this done today so instead i want to take a few questions before we get out of here um titanium thank you for that or type tit- Titan thank you for that i appreciate that gift you don't know where that what that does for us and how that makes this uh, ministry keep going man we are you might say god funded but crowd supported he uses his people so thank you for that it means more than you know and does more than you know goes farther than you than you even know uh, I want to answer a few questions if I can because um, I promise like I'll either go through this Wednesday since I didn't get to it today I'll tell you what since I didn't get to it today I promise you have my word unless God takes my life and I get to go home early yeah it sucks for you guys but I get to go um If I'm alive on a Wednesday, I will go through Hebrews 1 and we'll finish this, all right? I will do that. I just, there's no way today. I don't have the the mind, I'm not awake enough, the time running out. So I want to take a few questions. Let me know if you guys have questions. Just specifically, you know, relating to, you know, Jesus being God in the flesh. That would be helpful. Um, Probably not like, I don't know disproving text meaning this text makes it seem like jesus is not god because i'm going to go through those later i don't want to get ahead um but i do want to take questions and if even if it doesn't have anything to do with jesus being god in the flesh i'll take whatever questions relating to faith and christianity and and you know um life walking with jesus you know the bible whatever questions revolving around that just a few because um I just know I'm not, in, I'm not in a mental state to effectively communicate the beauty of Hebrews 1 and the entire book, letter to the Hebrews. It's insane, that is so cool. And so what I'm gonna do now is transition a bit. I just got fatter on the screen, I gained some weight. And then what I'm gonna do is, let's do comments. I wanna make sure you guys can see it. So I'm making sure I paste in the URL. We're good, let me see if this actually works. Q&A time, there we go, cool, so it works. Now, I would love to answer as many questions as I can, as best as I'm able to, Um, no promises, if I don't have the answer, I'll let you know, but I've been to a few Christian live chats and they were, I won't say, but wow, you guys are awesome, guys, give it up for yourselves, give it up for God working through you, I mean, I see all you guys in the chat, you know who you are. You're making this place better for, for new people. Thank you, guys. This ain't me. Like, people don't come here just to listen to me. They come here for the beautiful atmosphere you guys create. And so thank you, you know, Frit, Ken, Becca. Um, I see Silver. Um, gotta love Silver in here. And anyone else I'm missing. That's just, a, you know, if you're one of the core people in our community online, thank you, guys. Um. Someone says, James, look at this guy. How can the Jehovah's Witness even think uh, the archangel Michael is Jesus? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I actually received a few comments on a video I made where I was like, here's why I don't believe Jesus is Michael, the archangel. Here's a logical reason. Here's biblical reasoning. And um, they pushed back and said, well, here's why we, and I just thought those are, terrible arguments if our I can't remember what they were but I don't think they were well like well thought out I think they were just like regurgitated like maybe my favorite teacher said this and it just you haven't thought this through you haven't thought this through it doesn't make any sense um especially when you're referencing like the, the person who was commenting was referencing like uh apocryphal books as if like that's the basis of their arguments mm-hmm. Like, well, the book of Enoch says, and, and you know, and, and you can bring things together, culturally look at second temple literature and see what the Jews were thinking. That's fine. But when you're making ultimate truth claims based on a, apocryphal writings and writings that aren't divinely authoritative scripture and going, here's why. It's like, you can't build off that. You can't build off that. Jude and Peter, they recognize Enoch as literature their audience would know. Absolutely. But never do they authorize and validate it as divinely authoritative scripture. I think that's the difference. You know, Paul will go to Athens and reference the poets. He'll reference their writings. He'll reference, so it, there's, there's a way to culturally, they say, contextualize the gospel, right? Peter and Jude are doing that. They're using the writings that were familiar to the Jews of their day. And they're going, how can we deliver Jesus through what they know and understand as normal? I don't believe they're saying, you know what, go read Enoch, it's absolutely truth, because Enoch, uh, when you get to the end, it's going to claim that Enoch is essentially what Jesus is, only, you know, he's the Savior, he's the, the stand-in messianic figure, He's, and it's okay to have a type and shadow of Christ, but when you make someone else the substance, blech, you're saying he's the Savior, come on, be careful, okay, so, um, Uh, Jesus returns. Michael drags Satan to him in chains. You know, I do like that comment, Jeffrey. I think you should put that on a shirt and then just go to a Jehovah's Witness church. (laughs) Jesus returns. Michael drags Satan to him in chains. Um, Ken says, It's core understanding. Who is this, Ken? It's core understanding is so distorted that when you get to these service issues, they're brittle. That's right. They just fall apart. Um, So... Yeah. Um, There were people who said that Jesus might be Melchizedek. I've heard this. Uh, There there might be a case for it. I don't see... Uh, If Jesus is going to appear in the Old Testament, which I strongly believe that the angel of his presence, the angel of God's presence, and the word of God, and the name of God, all of these figures showing up in the Old Testament, I believe are just, you know, uh, ways to describe Jesus appearing in human form. Then I, I don't see why Melchizedek couldn't be a part of it. The problem is Melchizedek doesn't seem to be some mystical figure, I guess, as much as he's like concrete, and he's actually an established king of Salem, like he's known uh, as a king that rules. Um, seems to have a, a, a human life. Seems to be recognized. Abraham knows who he is. He's a part of the war and all that's going on. So I don't. It's it's just hard for me to consider that man having, like, a, a straight-up, like, human life, um, and then Jesus is that, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't believe he is, um, but people can totally think that, and I, I understand their, their reasoning as best as they can. I have no reason to go, ah, you're dumb. I th- yeah, it's totally reasonable. I just don't see that myself. Um. Manuel says, thank you for this, I don't know you had the Bible study every Monday morning, I'll be here next week. Yes, and Wednesday apparently, <laughs> because I don't know how to communicate well enough to get through content, and I stutter and I stagger, so we'll be here Wednesday too. Some guy named Marcus says, to be conformed to the instructions of Elohim so as to look like Him, and have the perfect payment for the eternal debt that we cannot pay for ourselves. What were you, comment- what were you responding to, Marcus? What is the ultimate purpose of Christianity? ultimate purpose, well, I would say before you're in relationship with God, it is to be in relationship with God, and even then, once you're in relationship with God, that is still the main point, like to sum it up, is to be in fellowship, in friendship with God, and that's going to look like obedience, that's going to look like love, that's going to look like seeking His face, that's going to look like loving neighbor, that's going to look like representing God and, you know, displaying His character well. Um, um. let's see who else we got Michael says Christ is that rock that followed the Israelites in the desert that's right we talked about that two episodes ago Jeff P says no you're correct it's not canon scripture but it helps eh love you man keep on searching you get there. I'll tell my dear friend Jeffrey Bamba says if any man had walked into the temple and made those claims solved Tarsus would have had him stoned to death later Paul uses just such terms to describe uh, Melchizedek well Assuming Paul wrote Hebrews, we don't know. I have my suspicions, of course, but who cares what I think? I do believe, man, it just sounds a lot like Paul when you read Hebrews. You're like, "Mm, Paul's like writing under a code name or something. Or it's not him, you know? Everyone has their suspicions. But I don't know anywhere else where Melchizedek is referenced apart from Psalms, Psalm 110? Uh, Genesis, yeah, Genesis 14, Psalm 110 and Hebrews. Only places you'll find it. So Paul is not credited with talking about Melchizedek unless he's the author of Hebrews. Uh, Leandro says, "I feel like I should know." This. What are your thoughts on post trip? Oh, that's a can of worms. I mainly because I'm. I don't know. Like to be very honest, Leandro, I don't know. Um, I need to study up on that for sure. Eschatology, meaning end times stuff, is my next. Big study. So, um, some guy named Johanna Whitworth says the purpose is also to be an image bearer of his character in order to bring his will on earth as it is in heaven. Bing, 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 bing. That's right. So when we say that Jesus having a relationship with God is the whole purpose of it all, there we go. And you can break that down into a bunch of different ways for sure. There is belief. Luke wrote while Paul dictated Mm, I've even heard uh, someone like Aquila. No, Aquila was the boy, right? Priscilla was the girl, Prisca. That one of those two might have been behind Hebrews. Jeff P says, I'm so glad that you and I can chat here. Maybe God wants us to meet so that, well, you know, iron sharpens iron. That's right. That's right. Any other questions? I didn't see on TikTok. Let me pull up the TikTok crew. I can't show your questions, but I can at least address them. Um, Let's see. Mm. Nope. What do you do when you lose motivation to read the Bible? Honestly, I fight. Like, I know you probably asked this like hours ago and you might not even be on here anymore, but someone on TikTok asked, what do you do when you lose motivation to read the Bible? I fight. I I do everything I can to... Um, do my part. I, I'm I'm just I'm sorry, I'm like really uh, foggy headed right now, I'm thinking through this because um I don't know. I like I pray even when I lack the motivation, I don't feel it. I I know it's the right thing to do. I know it's the right thing to do. I just don't always have the motivation or the willpower to do it. So I pray for willpower. And even when I I'll tell you this, we live in a culture where it's like if you don't have the willpower to do something, you won't do it. False absolutely false if I don't desire to do something if I don't have the willpower to do something I still can easily do it maybe not easily I still can do it this is like the story of my life how many times do I not want to get up with my kids or how many times throughout the month does my wife not want to get up with the kids at like 5am 2am it's like I have zero motivation or willpower but I have to I have to that's the kind of thing I'm talking about is we focus so much on the desire, and I'm waiting for the desire. I'm waiting for the feeling. I'm waiting for that willpower, and, and God's like, how about you exercise self-control, and you get your butt out of bed, and you, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking like myself, and I feel like this is how I talk to myself. You have the ability and the God-given grace to get up and open your Bible, even when you don't feel like it, and then as I do, I'll pray. God, help me to have the strength. Help me to have the willpower and the discipline as I'm doing this, and as I do, I go help motivate me more. And guess what? Sometimes motivation comes by stepping out and walking into something that you know God's calling you to do, but you don't have the willpower to do it. And you go, well, willpower precedes action. Not, again, not always. You, have, you know how many times I have zero, zero willpower um, <laughs> to do what I have to do each day, man? You still do it somehow. Why? Because the drive is there. The motivation might be lacking, but it's like, I have to. Um, So I think you need to find the right reasons. I probably said a lot of nothing. I guess if I were to say it again, I'd say pray. Read the scriptures anyway. Do what you can. Exercise discipline. And find more reasons to read. You know, I have a whole playlist on YouTube of all the reasons why you should read the scriptures. It's like 10 hours of content. Just every reason I could think of. I want to load you up. I want to equip you to have as much motivation as possible when you're not feeling it because guess what when you're not feeling it and you still read the bible that's when it's the most rewarding and it might not feel like that immediately but oh long term or throughout the day or you know later on you feel it and you go, you know what that was so worth it that was so worth it so um uh good morning Brittany. she says uh what platform is the question on the screen from jason that is from youtube so if you guys want to come join the YouTube, please do. One never regrets reading the Bible. Exactly. I just, we lack the, the motivation. And even when you do, I'll tell you what, find the motivation. That's my simple answer. Just find it whether it's being closer to God, whether it's being a better husband or, or or wife to your spouse, whether it's being a better parent to your kids, whether it's having the strength to resist temptation, whether it's, you know, knowing your father and seeing him clearly, whether it's having peace or joy, find the strongest motivation that will always override your lack of dis- your lack of willpower and, and, and feeling. What does it mean when it says Jesus is one and only begotten son? We'll talk about that uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. So this is going to take, probably two, three hours to break down, like, well, because Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews spends uh, a bulk of, of, of the letter just explaining what that means. So none of us are confused, you know? Um, so. And you know what? Some people lack motivation to read the Bible because they have no plan. You know how easy it is to fall out of a, uh, something when you don't even have a plan to do it? You're like, well, I'm not even going anywhere and I didn't commit to it. And I don't, you know. So you lose motivation. You have a reason to jump off. And I, again, people rely on feelings. I'm saying maybe that feeling eventually will come back in ebbs and flows. You'll feel it, you won't. You'll feel it, you won't. Don't wait for a feeling. It's a terrible way to live is to let your feelings guide you. I don't feel it. Forget your feelings. What does God say to do? Straight up, what does he say to do? Um self-control discipline is a is a fruit of the spirit. You have it. You have it, man. Um and I want to encourage you not to feel unqualified. I don't have you do have it. The spirit of God actually gives it to you freely. And so, you know, um I lost my train of thought cuz I'm a terrible thinker this morning, but I I just want to get you guys to understand that if you wait around waiting for a reason, you'll never find it. You need to actually be actively seeking motivation to read the scriptures. Um, what's up, Mike? Hey, Jason, love you, brother. Good to see you, man. Anyone who needs a kickstart, and and I'm telling you, like here, I'll post the playlist right here for you guys, and then we'll get out of here. For those of you that are like, I lack motivation. I don't feel passionate about reading the Bible. I don't. I don't know. I just don't want to. I don't want to. Okay. Well, I think when you have as much motivation as possible. Now, this is the actual, uh, like a podcast, but I'm gonna post it here anyway. This right here is the playlist. You can click it, it's a link. It'll take you to all the videos I've done teaching about motivation to read the Bible. When I don't feel like it, I remember, my kids need me to know God, like they do. My wife, if I'm gonna love her effectively, she needs me to know God and be with him. Or, you know, um, I just, I'm gonna face temptation today. I know it. it's inevitable so instead of running away and trying to hide under a rock what I can do is face it and have the word of God be my foundation but I need to actually spend time in the scriptures or I'm gonna have no joy or peace today from earthly circumstances so I need joy and peace from his promises you know you find motivation you find it you need to find your why it can't be someone else's why maybe but you can't live off someone else's why for long you gotta find your own and God gives you discipline, and so I'll tell you the motivation is there. Some like a lot, you'll feel it. You'll be like, I had the desire, I had the willpower. This is easy money, and then other times you're like, Whoa, where'd it go? And God goes, Remember, I gave you self control. I gave you self discipline. You have the ability to to do something even when you don't feel like it. Start your day in the Word, like Becca says. Start your day in the Word. If you have to listen, when you want something, you'll go after it. If you don't want it bad enough, you won't, period. That's just the, that's the straight facts. You make time for what you value, period. You and I both, every one of us, we make time for what we value. And yet we'll be like, I don't have the willpower, thank God, I don't have motivation. And I feel that. And I'm like, whoa, hold on, flesh, you shut up. And I'll end up doing it anyway, because I'm like, why would I prioritize time for TikTok and Netflix for three, four hours, and then i deplete all my willpower and strength on that, and then i have nothing else for God. That seems ridiculous. So I'll fight through. Sometimes it's you need to plan. If you have a plan to follow, you're, you're, you're more uh, committed. You'll be more faithful. You need to figure out what book are you going to read? How long are you going to read? Where are you going to read? You know, Don't be like really strict, but you know, at least have a plan in mind. What, what book of the Bible do you want to go through? Do you want to read alone? Do you want to read with someone? Do you want to read with music on? Where are you going to read it? What time of day? Make sure you have time throughout the day. When do you really have a lot of time each each day? Look at your schedule each week and go, well, I got to pick up the kids from soccer here. I got to punch my husband in the face here. And uh, at 2 p.m., I'm free. And so look at your schedule and look at where you have the time to seek the Lord. Um, a lot of people make no plans. Well, it's obvious. That's why you're not committed. That's like why I was never committed. Because I was like, oh, let me Bible roulette my way through life. You know what Bible roulette is? It's where you're like, God speak to me. Leviticus. Ah, you probably meant Joshua. And you just you, you never actually go through a book of the Bible, man. Pick a book, go through, go through James, go through John, go through first John, read it all the way through. As long as it takes you. Read it all the way through. Continue through that narrative. Continue through that gospel. Continue through that epistle. Um, and you'll see a lot more consistency. And the willpower to be like, hey, I got a plan going. When people just jump in the gym, this is like every every January, the world resets, right? And everyone's like, i want to get fit again. And they get the gym membership and they go for three weeks, maybe, max. But they never have a plan. They're like, I'm just going to kind of work on what I feel like doing. You know why you give up three weeks in? Never had a plan. Never had a plan. And so I'm telling you with you guys, whether it's financially, whether it's for your for your kids and your family, especially God, bro, make plans. We never restrict God to our plans. That's not what I'm saying. But at least have a plan for God to work with. If you're like, oh, God will make a way. Make a way with what? You're giving him no raw material to work with. They say it's easy to move a train in motion. Easier to move a train that's already in motion. So if I'm at a standstill, I'm like, God direct me. And he's like, you ain't even going anywhere. Oh, I'm just waiting for you to tell me, make some kind of movement. Apply for that job, right? Start reading your Bible here. I don't know, Send a text or do something so I can direct you. It's easier to move a train in motion. Of course, we're prayerful, but when it comes to reading the Bible, man, I'm telling you, the, the greatest piece of advice I can give people is have a plan, um, set alarms, have notifications on, look at your calendar. Have a vis- if you're a visible person or a visual person, have something on your calendar where it's like read Bible 2 p.m. and you're like, that's right, almost forgot. You know, if you go straight to the mirror in the morning to see how beautiful you look even though I slept three hours look at this gorgeous hair if you want to look in the mirror fine put a put a piece of paper there that says read the bible you dummy and you go oh, that's right thank you you know do something have your spouse you know first thing you do when you wake up he he or she reminds you read the bible remove, remove distractions uh, all these different things we're always like give me the give me the willpower of God and he's like ah, you have enough you're just being really dumb with it you're using it on all the wrong stuff. And by the time you get to the scriptures at 8 p.m., you've depleted all your willpower, all your strength is gone, your energy is... Because de- <clears throat> you watched Netflix for three hours and binge-watched a season that you're going to talk about for two days max, and then you're going to move on to something else. Maybe maybe that's why you don't have the willpower to read the Bible, you know? Do you believe apostles are gods in this verse? John 17, 24. You're, you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also in us... They, oh, let's go there. John 17, 21. This will be the last thing. Last thing, and then I got to go. Okay, Jesus says, I don't ask for these only. Up to that point, he's talking about who? I've sent them, referring to the disciples, the apostles. Okay? So he goes, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. Different category. Through their word, that they all maybe one, just as you father in me, I in you, that they also, so they, refers to what, those who will believe from the apostles, and those who are apostles, someone on tiktok asked that, yeah, I mean we're going through proverbs right now, and um, probably my favorite thing ever, because I've never read through proverbs with someone, And so I'm teaching through that on YouTube, and um, I think it's really fruitful, uh, for me at least, like I'm really learning wisdom, you want wisdom, read a proverb a day, meditate on it, read it again at night, people rush through the scriptures and they don't pay attention to the details, or maybe they're so obsessed with the details, they get lost in the weeds and never make any progress, and they're like, I've been in Matthew 1 for the last three years, wow, I don't think there's that much to dig into the genealogy, my friend, you know? It's like, move on. Make some progress. I don't want to go too fast. Pace yourself. Be wise about the pace you set. Don't go too fast so that you miss all the details. People are like, I used to know a guy in youth group. He'd be like, hey, I, uh, I read the Bible. I'd be like, sweet. He'd be like, read like 18 chapters. I'd be like, Pfft, bro, I don't, think, I don't think Daniel or Moses could retain that information. Like, what do you, 18 chapters? It's a lot. It's again, like 20 minutes. Okay, you just you just pretty much jumped in a plane, flew by, you know, a, a building and said, I took pictures of it. There's no way you took pictures of it. You went too fast. Um, you won't really catch it all. Get the big picture when you read the Bible for sure. Like if, I, if you've never read a book of the Bible, you're like, I never read John. Ooh, kind of scared. Read John all the way through. Just, just get a big old broad picture of the gospel. Then go back and read it slowly. Now that you have the big picture, you can see the details in light of the bigger story. Um, so yeah, read through it, I wouldn't say so fast that you miss everything, but fast enough to get the big picture, like you watch a movie all the way through, an hour and a half, two hours, and then you go back the next time you watch it, and you're actually dissecting it, breaking it down, because you you know how it ends. You know how the how the whole movie goes, so I encourage you to do that with the Bible. Um, Mic check, straight facts. Alright, I think that's it. You guys have no more questions that I see. Jason, how do you hear from God during prayer? I get discouraged most of the time thinking, am I hearing from him? Honestly, prayer isn't in the scriptures. Prayer is not communicated as something uh, that we should expect God to always speak to us through. Prayer is the way that I talk to God. Um, That doesn't mean he won't talk to me at all. But when you're relying on some audible voice or visions or dreams or some kind of way for God to vibe with me and you're neglecting the scriptures, which I'm not saying you are, Michael, uh, then 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 I think people are missing it. Okay, so I would encourage you to, number one, this is the way God speaks to us primarily. Not only, but primarily. So when I pray... My main focus is not God. This is a success if you talk to me. My main focus is is I'm just here to be with you and talk to you and worship you and adore you. And I'll have some time to listen. If I ask a question, if I need wisdom, if I'm asking for direction, I'll I'll, I'll listen. If there's no immediate answer, that doesn't mean he's not speaking. That just means uh, I have expectations of God that he just intends to not meet. And maybe he'll answer it a different way, through his word. But if I'm not in the word, and I'm going, Lord, you haven't talked to me in weeks, I'm starving. He's like, bro, open your Bible, I'll talk to you like very clearly. It'll be pretty obvious what I want. And then as you spend time in the scriptures, you can recognize his voice elsewhere. There are seasons of heightened, increased like God speaking. When you like assume every season is the same, you're already set up for failure. Right. Well, in this season, God was really like just dreams and visions popping off. I mean, I was in Walmart and he'd be like, that lady, she's going through bankruptcy. That lady, she just lost her son. And you're like, what is happening? That season of life might have been like incredible. Uh, but And though I believe God can sustain that and keep it going, I don't believe we should expect every season to be exactly the same. There, there's For whatever reason, along the path of our life, God has ordained different seasons of like, you know, increased speaking, or at least very, I very clearly recognize he's speaking, and then other times where it's kind of, kind of died down, you know, and that silence actually is supposed to draw you closer, and make you, um, you know, uh, spend more time seeking him, it's like God creates that space, that gap, if it's always like butterflies and rainbows, God's talking to me about everyone that I see, then it's, um, I don't know, you can grow arrogant, prideful, you can, so I think God creates that space and that gap where it, it's intentionally quiet, according to us, because He's uh, increasing your capacity and to grow you, He's going to stretch you, and that might include silence for a little bit. And as you read the Word, you're like, "I'm just not retaining. I'm trying, and and I'm praying. Well, how, will you keep seeking? That will do something for someone's faith when they when they deal with silence." And God's not answering anything. And they go, you know what? I'm going to deal with this in a way where I'm going to keep pressing in any way. I'm going to keep going after him. That will do something for someone's faith. And I think God knows. God knows what that does for us. Uh, last question. What is that computer Bible app you're using? It's called Bible Study by Olive Tree. Bible Study by Olive, O-L-I-V-E, Tree. All right? And so, yeah, you have you have hills, you have valleys, you have mountains, you have all these different seasons of life. Um, don't, yeah, don't quit too soon, you know? So, all I got for you guys today, let's go, last time my audio cut out when I transitioned to this outro, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to take the roadcaster. I'm going to go to outro, you should be able to hear me. You guys still hear me? Am I coming through? I just want to make sure, because... Last time the audio cut out. I want to see if it's working. It says on my end it's coming through. But this is the outro scene, so uh, welcome to OBS 101. By the way, uh, I guess now's a good time to let people know. Um, I've started a second channel which is dedicated to helping those of you that want to be Christian content creators, online pastors... You want to start online ministries, online church groups, online studies. Maybe you're trying to add an online, you know, ministry to your local church. Uh, For those who just want to use their gifts and skills in a digital space, um, I've created a second channel. It's called Above Reproach Creators. And so I'm going to periodically upload content at least two videos a week, two, three videos. And I hope they're helpful, you know, um, where I just address... What I believe Scripture says about community, content, and being a creator, and the church at large, and how to navigate that, how to def- how to discover the content God's made you to develop and designed you to put out, and how you contextualize the gospel in the, the unique way God's called you to, how to build communities online. So, if you want to go uh, check that out, it's above approach creators. It's on our YouTube channel, uh, above approach ministry. You can find that related channel in on our homepage, and so. You can go check that out, all right? That's all I have for you guys today. Visit abovereproachministry.com for all your needs in life. You can check out all the free resources we have, um, our podcast, um, our second podcast. You can get a copy of my book, Fruitful. You can join our online church. Um, you can give to this ministry and help us continue you know, equipping the church, building the saints, and um, join the Discord church. We'll be live on the VC in about 30 five minutes or so so come join us and i'll see you guys there all right